0: The pelican is a bird of Egypt living in the wilderness of the River Nile. It is devoted to its young. When it gives birth and the young begin to grow, they strike their parents in the face, but the parents, striking back, kill them. On the third day, however, the mother bird, with a blow to her flank, opens up her side and lies on her young and lets her blood pour over the bodies of the dead, and so raises them from the dead. In a mystic sense, the pelican signifies Christ, Egypt, the world. The pelican lives in solitude, as Christ alone condescended to be born of a virgin without intercourse with a man. It is solitary because it is free from sin, as also is the life of Christ. It kills its young with its beak, as preaching the word of God converts the unbelievers. It weeps ceaselessly for its young, as Christ wept with pity when he raised Lazarus. Thus, after three days, it revives its young with its blood as Christ saves us, whom he has redeemed with his own blood. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand.
1: And I'm Ian McInnes.
0: And this is Real Fantastic Beasts
1: because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. So today, pelicans.
0: Pelicans.
1: (laughs) Stranger than you might think.
0: Well, you know, pelicans are pretty strange birds to begin with. I mean, they're eye-catching, right? Whenever I used to see them, I lived on the California coast for a long time, and I would see these sort of phalanxes of pelicans gliding by. And I would always think in my mind, dinosaurs, because they kind of look like prehistoric. Yeah. And it turns out, actually, just to start with the real beasts, that pelicans, like evolutionarily, are one of the most conservative animals out there. That is to say, they've existed virtually unchanged since the late Eocene era, about thirty-five million years ago. Which makes them kind of like in the same class as crocodiles in terms of their evolutionary conservatism, which means that they have a pretty good evolutionary strategy going for them. So they really are kind of dinosaur birds, you could say.
1: And also, therefore, a kind of a fantastical in all sorts of ways. I mean, people find them interesting and fantastical, no matter which end you come to. So in a way, we're still treating pelicans as a particularly fantastic creature.
0: It's true that they're fantastic. They're among the largest birds, too. So anything really large or really small for its kind is notable. The Dalmatian pelican, which was probably the pelican species most familiar to medieval Europeans can have a wingspan over nine feet, almost 10 feet, which is really remarkable considering how light they are. They have, you know, a lot of air pockets in their their enormous bodies so that they can float basically when they land in the water.
1: So I want to know the first hand account you read, that's from a bestiary, right?
0: Absolutely. That one happens to be a translation of the text in the um, Aberdeen bestiary, which is one of the most spectacular English bestiaries of the Middle Ages. The pelican, above all in the Middle Ages, is understood as this figure for Christ because people observed that pelicans, which have this kind of fleshy pouch under their lower beak called a gular pouch, they would, right, um, and kind of macerate the food and then vomit it out for the baby pelican's to eat. That, that's what pelicans actually do in the wild. And this Dalmatian pelican that I just mentioned, during the breeding season, its pouch turns blood red. You kind of see where this is going. That natural behavior that was observed led people to believe that the pelicans were actually pecking their own breasts and releasing blood to feed their children. It's a little irresistible. The white breast of the pelican is pierced, the blood flows forth. Let's see, who else had a pure white breast that flowed forth blood? Well, Christ on the cross. And so it kind of builds from there and you have this extended spiritual reading of the pelican.
1: So they are, I mean, bestiaries do this to every single animal, though, to be, to be fair, right? I mean, they, they tend to allegorize absolutely everything in terms of Christ, somehow, or the devil.
0: True, although there are very few animals that are so closely associated with Christ. I mean, there are a few, but the pelican really is kind of a one trick pony, so to speak. Like There aren't a whole lot of different interpretations of the pelican in medieval literature or art. The pelican is always shown in art pecking its breast, feeding its infants, it becomes a heraldic figure. So people adopt it for their heraldry. In fact, you might be familiar with the Pelican Press. Yes. That's still a going concern. The Pelican Press was founded by someone whose family crest was a pelican.
1: I'll have a lot to say about the sort of the the echoes of the pelican, the heraldic mm-hmm. pelican through, through time, because it's it's still very current in the Pelican Press and, and elsewhere. Uh, but I wanted to ask, so you, you, you talk about observing, say, the Dalmatian pelican and Physiologus. Is physiologists where this l- sort of story begins? Is that, that the oldest text we have that does this allegorizing?
0: Well, in fact, this observation of the pelican goes back earlier, but the mention of the of the pelican as a kind of self-sacrificing parent and the allegorization of that as christ as the self-sacrificing parent of humanity that is actually found in some of the early church fathers as well in a kind of skeptical way um augustine mentions this he says you know some people say that the pelican does this and whether or not it's true it's a great figure. that, like, He literally says that. He's like, it doesn't really matter whether that's true, because it is a perfect figure for what. So useful. <laughs> exactly.
1: Then is there evidence, is there like direct textual evidence that this behavior comes from a misobservation? Or is that our attempt to imagine why they may have come up with this idea? And I'm asking, you'll see why I'm asking this question, but I, I kind of want to know, like... Oh what kind of like direct textual evidence do we have that, that there is a, like a literal observation of a real live pelican leading to this conclusion?
0: Um, you know, that's always a good question. And if we go back Pliny's natural history or something, there is the observation of the pelican behavior of it pecking its breath. I don't think that there's the claim that the babies are dead, or the chicks are dead. I think it's just, you know, it does this thing with its gular right. pouch. But there's also, you know, some information about where they live in Egypt and that there are two kinds. And indeed, there were two kinds there's the great white pelican as well as the Dalmatian pelican, and that they're water birds. And interestingly, the observation that they eat reptiles. I had to go look and see if this was true because I thought pelicans only ate fish, but it, they actually do eat other things, including reptiles, other birds, eggs. They like to prey on the eggs of other like cliff nesting birds. So I wouldn't say it's cut and dry. I would say that there's some possibility that there was an eyewitness account or a a sort of authoritative text that says, this is what pelicans do. And then the behavioral observation gets kind of buried under all of these layers of of repetition and allegorization. I want to say though, that it's interesting because it must've been a really powerful devotional image because it's found in two really different but interesting context. One is a hymn by Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican theologian called Pie Pelicane. The text of it goes, oh, tender pelican, Lord Jesus. So he's addressing Jesus as a pelican, which I think is really, I mean, that's taking the metaphor to the next level, right? Uh, Purify me, who am unclean in your blood. So again, the idea of the redemptive blood of Christ, one drop of which can save the whole world from its sin. So really it becomes less about the pelican and more about the blood, I think, for, for Thomas Aquinas, which doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, that's typical. But then there's this other text from the early 13th century from England, Ankarin Wisse. You'll have to forgive my old English <laughs> pronunciation, may not be perfect. But in that text, there are a series of uh, interpretive passages about lines from the Psalms. This was a text written for anchoresses, is, women who had separated themselves from society, taken a vow to live enclosed, I mean, sometimes literally like walled up in the cell that they occupied for the rest of their life, just to focus their attention to God.
1: I mean, they, they would get walled up, but the, there would be ways of feeding them still. They—they <laughs> like they, they would have some holes. I always thought, like, wow, how do they? How long do they live once they're walled up? I just don't know. But they did feed them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I figured they had to have a they had to have a passageway through which food could come in, and they could uh, talk to their confessor because being women, they needed to, con- you know, everybody needed a confessor, but being a woman, they couldn't, you know, perform the Eucharist themselves, for example. So they had to have a pass through, and then you figure there were probably also things that went out through that door. Anyhow, returning to pelicans, so in the Anchorage, there's a passage about this line from the Psalms. So Psalm 101 has a line in which the psalmist says, I am become like to the pelican of the wilderness. I am like a night raven in the house. I have watched and am become as a sparrow all alone on the housetop. That line from the Psalms in the anchoring with is discussed in terms not of the pelican's sort of likeness to Christ, but instead, get this, as a kind of, moral lesson about anger. Remember the pelican, it gets pecked in the face by its annoying chicks, and so it pecks its chicks to death. And what the anchor in Vista says is the pelican is a figure for the spiritual danger of bitterness and anger. It's so irascible and violent that it kills its own children. So it's actually a story about sin, confession, and penance, which is what Anchoresses are supposed to be involved in all day long, like they're supposed to be identifying their sins. And since they're walled up inside, you know, a cell, they don't really have any opportunities for the kinds of sins that, you know, people living outside in the world might have, like eating too much or having sex with the wrong people or coveting their neighbor's belongings or whatever. The only sins that they can have are these sort of inward sins of thought. The pelican and its sorrow over having slaughtered its own children really becomes a figure for that penitential gesture. Like when it pecks its breast and bleeds, That that's the pelican performing penance. I guess I'm bringing it up because I think it's interesting that in the 13th century, you have these two very different perspectives. You have Thomas Aquinas, O oh, pious pelican, your purifying blood. And then you have, on the other hand, this anonymous author writing for enclosed... Women saying, No, this figure of the self wounding pelican isn't Christ, it's you. But now I want to ask you a riddle. Okay. Uh, Okay. I'm ready. Okay. This is a riddle from the 8th century by a guy named Aldhelm. Aldhelm was the abbot of Malmesbury Abbey, and um, he dedicated this book of riddles that he wrote to the king of Northumbria, Alfred. So put yourself in Alfred's shoes or on his throne.
1: I've always wanted to be an Anglo-Saxon monarch.
0: I am bright white, born ages ago of the gleaming pelican who takes the waters of the sea into his open mouth. Now I travel a narrow path over white glowing fields. I leave blue footprints along the shining way, obscuring bright fields with my blackened winding. It is not enough for me to open one pathway through the fields. Rather, the road runs its course in a thousand byways and leads those who stray not to the heights of heaven.
1: Yeah, I have no idea.
0: Here's a clue.
1: Oh great, now if I don't get it, I'm gonna be very upset, yes.
0: (laughs) What did Aldham use to write this riddle?
1: Oh, I know, a quill. (laughs)
0: A quill, exactly. So I found this riddle so fascinating because I was like fully expecting there to be some Christ-centric interpretation of the pelican in the Anglo-Saxon riddle corpus. But no, in fact, the only mention of the pelican is this mention of its quill. So that sent me down a crazy rabbit hole and I spent so much time trying to find out if there was any material evidence that people had actually used Pelican, pelican feathers. feathers to make writing implements because, okay, a couple of problems with this. Pelicans are pelagic birds. They're out there flying over the ocean. Where was he getting this? Where was all them getting this idea that somebody would use a pelican quill? I, I suppose you could shoot a pelican down or a pelican could wash up.
1: I check the range map for the the white pelican and at least ne- these days it's listed as being a, a com- like a visitor all the way up th- across the coast of Norway right So like okay. you, you could see one up there and I need to look into this more clearly because there's some indication that like maybe there's a breeding population in Italy or uh, even Germany they, they could have seen they, they could have seen pelicans, but they couldn't be thinking of them as like the go-to writing instrument.
0: Right. And that's what's so interesting. Like that first line, I am bright white born ages ago of the gleaming pelican. Like that's what threw me off about this riddle, actually, because if it had said, you know, born of a swan or a goose or whatever, I think you would have gotten it right away. But pelican, that it's not your go-to quill material for your medieval scribe. So there's something going on here. I don't know if anybody's ever really dug into this, but why the pelican? It's- you know?
1: It could be deliberate misdirection because I I don't know that riddle, but I I have certainly taught other riddles from like the Mm -hmm. Exeter Book, and misdirection is is like one of the things is one of the ways that the riddles work. And I could imagine you put the pelican in there because you know your audience is immediately going to go for the you know go down the the sort of the the. Uh, religious uh, allegorizing path and forget that like well pelicans also have feathers and they're white
0: right and i mean this kind of really gets right at the heart of our real and fantastic question right because clearly there's a real beast a pelican but also clearly by the maybe as early as the ninth century or the eighth century people get it that the fantastic beast that is to say the allegorical beast the christ pelican Who, by the way, is the mother pelican? But I'll let you talk about that. They they get to this point already by the eighth century that that the allegory has almost taken over for the real animal. Like the real animal becomes of less interest. So yeah, that would that would really work. The misdirection hypothesis that it's in there, well, for misdirection and also to be, you know, gleaming white and the waters of the sea um, that contrasts the narrow path over the white glowing fields the blue footprints the bright fields the blackened windings like i feel like there's this play of bright and dark light you know white and and black and then the blue is in there to refer kind of loop back to the sea but it's quite a clever poem
1: it is it is and of course the the blue tigers clearly are being written with these quills
0: (laughs) absolutely if i were going to write about a blue spotted tiger, I would definitely use a pelican quill, if I could find one. So I mentioned the, the thing about the mothers. And I think that that, I mean, in the Middle Ages, the sort of maternal qualities of Christ, those are feminine qualities of Christ, people were quite at home with that, you know, particularly from the 12th century forward, there's quite a bit of poetry and, and I should say religious poetry, of course, that celebrates Christ's sort of maternal qualities and even compares the bleeding wound in his side from the crucifixion to, you know, a mother's breast. So the pelican mother as a figure for Christ isn't as strange as it might seem to, you know, a 21st century person who's a little more habituated to a more binary thinking about Christ in terms of gender.
1: That's true. And I think also interest in uh, maternal maternal affection or, you know, maternal love as being the sort of the purest form that you can go to for thinking mm-hmm. about love. I mean, romantic love is is available as well, but it has like the romantic love of, you know, of Christ for the for the church or for humanity has all sorts of kind of weird charges that come along with it that you see in some of the the poetry. But mm-hmm. the mother you know the love of a mother for the child has that that you know takes away all of that charge and just sort of reduces it to the you know often seen as kind of like the most basic form of love so if you want divine love figure of maternal affection for the animal world sounds good
0: yeah i mean i would interject that the maternal love depicted between mary and christ or sometimes enacted particularly by religious women and convents there is a pretty heavy charge of eroticism to that so even though we're talking about a mother holding her sweet baby there's all kinds of fondling and dandling and stuff going on that complicates that picture
1: but that said
0: (laughs) i agree (laughs) that maternal love can be figured as a a less yeah a less fraught kind of of love yeah All right. So tell me a little bit about what happens to our self-sacrificing pelican mother when we get up to the early modern period, Ian.
1: I'm going to pursue sort of two angles. One is this initial, the iconography of the self-wounding pelican persists right through the early modern period into the modern era, as you pointed out with the pelican press, so I, I'll just I'll you know like I'll track that through my my period uh, and give you the sort of the most famous examples there. Uh, but then there's a, there's a really interesting natural history problem that that presents itself to the early modern natural philosophers, and I'll work through their answer to that question as well. So, you know, the pelican, it becomes a a heraldic figure, as you mentioned, right? It's sometimes called the pelican in her piety, or they use the Latin, uh, the word volning, which basically means wounding yourself, right? It's the pelican volning. It's just, it's a thing, right, that you could find. And so it finds itself into places like the the coat of arms of uh, Corpus Christi College in Cambridge and Oxford, because Corpus Christi was associated with the pelican. There's a university in Prague these days, uh, I think a medical university that has uh, the the pelican in there.
0: So Corpus Christi being like the body of Christ with, with that wound, it makes sense that yes. the pelican kind of stands in for the wounded body. Yeah.
1: Sure. Yeah. Oh, uh, also, m- most interestingly, the the symbol of the current symbol of the Irish Blood Transfusion Service is a pelican, and for a long time that that service was located had had its headquarters in Dublin, and it was called Pelican House. Um, if you look at the logo now, it's a very stylized pelican, but it's clearly still it's a pelican, right? So like, the blood transfusion is sort of the modern version of like giving your blood to save lives. You could see how that works in all sorts of ways. I think the most famous example. In which that iconography get, iconography gets kind of adopted is the pelican portrait of Queen Elizabeth by Nicholas Hilliard. So this is around 1575.
0: I was really hoping you would talk about that.
1: Yeah. Now, if you like, uh, if you don't know, Elizabeth had was very fond of sort of iconography and allegory in many forms, and associated herself with a whole bunches of things. And she also liked to have. Her image portrayed in certain ways, and so she has lots of wonderful portraits. Most of them are full of of various figures, but the pelican portrait is one in which she's got. Uh, you know, she's depicted as having a, a little sort of pelican um, piece of jewelry, which is essentially the the medieval figure of the pelican in her piety. There it is, just like it's always been, and it played into her personal. Narrative. So she is, you know, she's portraying herself as as this sort of loving pelican. It's not. It's no longer Christ. It's the loving monarch. But that plays into her own particular the way that she was pitching herself, her kind of marketing of herself and her regime. There's a famous speech that she gives in uh, around 1601. Uh, There's some dispute about exactly when it happened, but it's it's called the Golden Speech. And uh, she says things, this is a speech to parliament. She says things like, I I do assure you there is no prince that loves his subjects better or whose love can countervail our love and that God has raised me high yet this account to the glory of my crown that I have reigned with your loves. So uh, she's basically saying other monarchs are good at one thing or another. I'm good at love, right? That's the thing that I do well. So you can see that the pelican you know, it's sort of a natural, right? For her, it's a a great figure for her love for her people, but also her sense of self-sacrifice for them, because she portrayed herself as having sacrificed everything for her country. Even her virginity is a sort of a sacrifice for her country, you know, married to England, that kind of idea. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it plays in, like, it works particularly well, I think. So, you know, comes right down through the period. The problem is, for the early modern natural philosophers, is that there's a, you know, there are these birds out there that everybody knows about, that have been called pelicans, but as you mentioned, the figure of the pelican has become so distant from the real pelican that it it it's no longer something that they can like realistically bring into the natural philosophy, but they have to. So there's some solutions that they come up with. And one of them, well, so there's there's two solutions.
0: So are you saying in that essentially they were under some kind of obligation to match up this allegorical reading, this Christian understanding of the pelican with what they observed in nature?
1: Well, so many of these natural philosophers are often doing a lot of reporting a bunch of authorities. Um, There is Mm -hmm. some observation and more observation as the century goes on. But even if, even in reporting the authorities, you know, because Pliny doesn't really make a big deal of this uh, behavior, they they have a problem in ways that they don't with other animals because they're perfectly capable of repeating all sorts of crazy lore about any animal. But when it comes to the pelican, the figure is so distant from the like the other things they want to say about the the bird and the other things that authorities have said about it that they they have to be, they have to sort of deal with that and they have to deal with it right away. So one thing that happens is that they try to separate the symbolic figurative pelican from the real bird. So Aldravandi, who's the most famous ornithological guy, um, and gets repeated by others, Gessner, even Topsil basically uses Aldravandi, and I'll get to Topsil in a second. Uh, But in Aldravandi, he calls the bird the onacrotolus, which is, by the way, that's, I mean, that's the name for the, uh, the species of the great white pelican now. So it's, you know, the Latin name for the great white pelican is Pelicanus onacrotalus. But Aldrovandi says it's the onacrotalus or pelican, right? Like pelican gets us, gets sort of second. And right away, Aldrovandi starts and says, Well, there's a lot of people who uh, basically treat the pelican like this strange and unknown bird. And all the painters have basically just accepted this. But I don't think there's any, any bird like this in nature. And then he says, Unless someone thinks that there's this Egyptian vulture, which really does this thing, and then Aldrovandi gives you two pictures for the pelican, two beautiful engravings, both highly naturalistic. One of them is the is the medieval pelican, and then one of them is very clearly what we would consider to be a pelican. looks exactly like you know the the bird that we we're all familiar with, and the. The medieval one of course is, is very unlike that it's very different so he gives both pictures sort of discounts one picture but then also sort of says like well maybe there is a real bird and it's actually a vulture and it accidentally got transferred you know like it, it it's been sort of falsely called uh the pelican but i don't want to call it the pelican i want to call it the onocrotolus anyway okay so kind of trying to separate out the the real pelican and then you remember that comment you made about there being two kinds of pelicans, which is an early early statement about pelicans, gets mm-hmm. turned into an opportunity to say like, aha, the one that wounds itself and is in all these pictures is one of the two kinds of pelicans. Mm-hmm. So Batman upon Bartholomew, Bartholomew, which is uh, like fifteen seventies or eighties, says there are two manner of pelicans. One dwells in the water and eats fish. And the other dwells on land and loves wilderness and eats venomous beasts, such as lizards mm-hmm. and other such, right? So you get the lizard eating. So like the the ones that eat the reptiles are not the ones that live in the water and the ones that live in the water eat fish. And then presumably then the legendary, self-wounding, maternal-loving pelican is the is the sort of like the desert dweller that's mm-hmm. <laughs> hangs out there and eats like poisonous snakes. All right. Mm. So that's one way, you know, like you take the, the Authorities and you separate it out. So now we've got two pelicans, but you still have a problem because the word pelicans there and the, and the word itself is, uh, you know, has to be dealt with or yeah. maybe has to be dealt with. So Topsil's published book, the one my beloved Topsil that I'm always mentioning, doesn't have any birds in it, but mm-hmm. there is a manuscript that Topsil wrote. He was going to do his ornithological work yeah. and he started a manuscript. And the manuscript is in the Huntington Library in California. so you can go see I it. I love
0: the Huntington Library.
1: <laughs> and his manuscript in his manuscript, he gets from through he does a birds beginning with a, B, and C. And so you're saying, I bet he doesn't do the pelican, right? I mean, but he does. It's the first bird there. And he does this by calling it the Alcatraz, which is the Spanish word at the time, probably the Spanish word for pelican today. By the way, this it's the Spanish word for gannet. So like there's an explanation for that. Uh, but Topsil says, this is the Alcatraz. It's just the Alcatraz. And he actually has a little comment on the name. He says, but the Indians, where it is most natural, call it Alcatraz. And therefore, without the liberty of invention of any other name, I will bind my pen to it in this history. Although out of no sim- that some, some people, out of no similitude, but that it want a gall, do term it a water pelican. So he says.
0: <laughs> a water, a water pelican? Yes. I
1: yes. guess
0: as opposed to a desert pelican. Exactly. When, which is kind of a funny and deliberate misreading of, like, they live on the Nile, which is a river in a desert. Like, yep. at no point did the early sources say they're not water birds. Oh, and I also want to mention that you know the famous island Alcatraz is named after the pelicans. That yes, it is. You know, yes, are always yeah. flying around it.
1: Yeah, which I think is a, is the great white pelican because I think there is a population of them in uh, uh, the northern Pacific, which is interesting. They can live in pretty cold cold places.
0: Also, brown pelicans, though, and and there's a whole like the New World pelicans are a whole separate group from the in in the Linnaean classification.
1: Yes. Uh, so yeah, like, but that so the term water pelican, which he says there is no similarity between this this you know like my alcatraz and this pelican, but some people think there is and therefore want to call the my alcatraz a water pelican, <laughs> right? Like, well, we're like this is the pelican. Come on, guys, this is like this is the pelican. There's no land pelican that is the real true pelican. This is this is just it. But, and so he doesn't include, obviously, the story about the self-wounding and everything, because for him, that's, you know, that's this other animal, right? And not the Alcatraz. But he's still, his stories about the Alcatraz or slash water pelican. I feel like we should just call it, we should always call it the water pelican now, right? There, there's no, there's just the water pelican. That's what we're talking about, right? Uh <laughs> So he has a story, he says the Spaniards of the West Indies take the the old and young by this stratagem. So they find them, they make a fire about the about, you know, they make a fire between the adults in the nest, and then the, the old the adults kind of run to the nest and they get their wings on fire, and so then they can't fly away. And that way you can get them, you know, you sort of catch them all. But then he says, you know, like this is the this exhibits their excessive love for their children. Hmm. Particularly you know, and it starts from all of them to basically the 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 her right the her, the, the the female pelican mm-hmm. who's doing this thing. So mm-hmm. even when he's completely you know swerving aside from the traditional medieval story about the pelican, he's still holding up his water pelican as an example of like supreme maternal affection. So all right, so that's one strategy, right? You know, it's separate out two pelicans. There's one pelican, but there's the water pelican.
0: I'm just imagining the task that these early natural historians had. I mean, we laugh, right? Because it seems absurd. But just the other day, I was confronted with a very large body of information that was completely unfamiliar to me, had to do with NSF funding, but you don't want the details. The point is, I sat there and went, what is all this stuff? And I started trying to put it into sort of the frameworks that I know and then to like create categories for the stuff that didn't fit and i'm pretty sure you know metaphorically speaking i came up with some water pelican i came up with some really superfluous redundant categories for this information because when you're confronted with you know conflicting accounts and you don't really have enough expertise or information or or method in an area to really cross-check your information and, and make sure that you're not misreading things, I think early modern natural historians were really in that position. They had this whole weight of, you know, the bestiary tradition and the iconographic tradition working against them in a sense. To be fair to P- Topsil, is all I'm saying.
1: Yes. So the the other strategy is just to double down on the you know, the the one true pelican. There's a great book by a guy named Brown, which is basically like uh, 17th century myth busters. And of course, he takes on the pelican. So he says, he has a lot to say about the sort of the, that that story about the pelican. Uh, he says that, you know, he doesn't want to like insult the pelican. He's sure it's a very loving mother, but like that whole story is just not true. And then he dwells on the pictures, the, 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 the picture of the pelican, which, and he, he mentions things that. Like we you'll all notice, I mean, if you look at the pictures of the of the, the pelican in bestiaries and almost anywhere you find it, you'll you'll say it doesn't look anything like a pelican, right? It looks nothing like a pelican. So he says, the picture, quote, contains many improprieties, disagreeing all, almost in all things from the true and proper description. For first, whereof it is commonly set forth green or yellow, its proper color is inclining to white, excepting the extremities or tops of the wing wet feathers which are black. It is described in the bigness of a hen, whereas it approaches and sometimes exceeds the magnitude of a swan. It is commonly painted with a short bill, whereas that of the pelican attains sometimes the length of two spans. The bill is made acute or pointed at the end, whereas indeed it is flat and broad. It is described like birds which have claws, whereas it is fin-footed like swans and geese. Lastly, there is one part omitted more remarkable than any other, and that is the sack or crop adhering to the lower side of the bill and so descending by the throat. A bag or satchel very observable and of capacity almost beyond credit. This is that part preserved for a rarity and wherein, as Sanctius delivers, in one dissected, a child was found. So he says like, it's so big, they found a baby in it once when they dissected it, <laughs> right?
0: So as you're reading this to me, I'm looking through the the images from Various medieval bestiaries on bestiary.ca, which is like the best bestiary website if anybody's interested. And, you know, he's absolutely right. There is not one throat gular pouch in view, and most of them look kind of like geese.
1: Except that they have claws. They're sort of like eagly, kind of like eagly beastie, almost like a bird of prey. Kind of, they look a little yep. bit like a vertebrae.
0: You could say a long necked eagle or a claw footed mm-hmm. goose.
1: And Brown is, is pointing out that, like, if you see an actual pelican, that that bill and that sack, they just, like, you don't, like, oops, I forgot to notice. It's like two and a half foot long bill with a giant sack hanging out <laughs> from under it. That's not something you just, oh, you know, you don't see what he's doing is sort of replacing one pelican with another, right? He's replacing the supernatural Marvel with a preternatural Marvel, right? It's still amazing. It's still like, you know, mm-hmm. full of like the bizarre, the child found dead in the, in the sack of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the, the pelican, but now it's, it's not supernatural, you know, it's not bringing things back to life. It's just, it's preternatural, right? Like it's, it's natural, but it's really odd and bizarre and strange. So he's replacing mm-hmm. it with that. Then, of course, Linnaeus comes along. And Linnaeus is the one who is, of course, credited, credited with like the first description and the, like, the official names. And before Linnaeus does that, he has his book, Systema Naturae, which is 1735. And he has a section on monsters, which he calls Paradoxa, in which he includes the pelican. And he mm-hmm. says, Linnaeus says, the pelican, who with its beak wounds its thigh, I don't know how he got that, but wounds its thigh in order to quench the thirst of its young with the blood flowing out, has been fabulously handed down by the same people. The origin, the origin of this tale is the sack hanging from its gullet. So Linnaeus is also replacing, you know, like is doubling down on the pelican, like it is a pelican. It's not a Alcatraz, it's not an Anacrotala, it's like it's a pelican. Uh, but he begins by taking the story and saying, Oh, it's not true. Oh, but it it had, had its origins. And he's doing what what you started us doing, which is that reverse no. etiology of saying, I'm sure they saw a real pelican, and from the details of the real pelican, they, they created this story and you know, did that thing. And that, by the way, has been the common approach to this story ever since. You know, People are always trying to say, like, they were looking at real pelicans when they came up with this wounding pelican story. Never mind the fact that when they picture it, they're not picturing any other aspect of the pelican <laughs> whatsoever. It's just a different animal mm-hmm. completely.
0: Well, I think, I mean, I think there is an explanation for that, which is that you have this early Christian essentially figure of the self-wounding pelican, right? And in not one of those early Christian accounts do we hear about the gula, the the, right. the pouch, right? And so then those texts get copied. They don't, get illustrated right away. I mean, the earliest illustrated bestiaries are quite a bit later, right? And the earliest images of the pelican are quite a bit later. I'm going to say like at least late Carolingian. And you don't really get the sort of proliferation of the pelican iconography until the 12th century. So (laughs) you've got almost a thousand years between the first instance of this figure and the incessant repetition of the figure and then the first illustration or the you know, visualization of the figure. And I think that, you know, in that case, we're talking about artists practice, really. Like, how do we understand what artists in the Middle Ages thought they were doing when they made a picture? Like authors, like writers, they turn to authoritative sources and forms. And you mentioned it looks kind of like an eagle. Well, there are eagles just everywhere in early Christian Uh, early medieval art. Eagles are a sort of um, pervasive bird. And these sort of like vaguely raptor-like birds are just everywhere, right? I want to say that the artists, because the texts weren't concerned at all with the pouch, wouldn't necessarily, like even if they lived in a place where there were pelicans, wouldn't necessarily go out and sketch some pelicans and then come back and like make a manuscript illumination out of that sketch. That's not how they worked. (laughs) <laughs> so, like, to have the expectation that their pelicans would look realistic is probably probably not not fair to them. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the pelican that they knew was not a living animal. It was a fantastic beast.
1: So I, I would buy that except for a, a couple of things. One is that it is a fantastic beast for them, but it's a fantastic beast that shares space with a real bird, which they could have easily been pretty familiar with. So this is not a case of, like, the tiger, where you think, well, look, in the absence of a real tiger, gosh knows, right? Like, you're just going to do it the way it's always been done, or you're going to, you know, you're just going to rely on authorities to do that. Other animals that were well known when they're depicted in bestiaries are, yeah, I mean, they're what we would call, you know, realism and accuracy are are certainly not, not always a part of the picture, but they're not as, they're, they're not like that far. So I think what's happening is that pe- the pelican they're drawing is not, they don't think of that as the pelican that's that they see, right? They're, they're not saying like, they're not just ignoring that fact about the pelican and drawing it this other way because they don't do that when they draw geese or, you know, uh, ducks or rabbits or other things that are sort of like wrong, but like vaguely wrong. And they're not doing what they do with truly exotic animals where they're like, when you're trying to draw an elephant, you've never seen an elephant or you're like doing a tiger and there aren't any tigers. Like this is an animal that is is—it's pretty well known. This is a true fantastic animal because it has no, it is sort of deliberately non-real in so many ways. It's not a misinterpretation of a real thing. And the reason I think when you like, because Linnaeus is the very first one who says, oh, it's, you know, like it's, they got this from observing the real pelican, which is not something that happens before, is that he is part of the Enlightenment. And one of the jobs of the Enlightenment you know the sociologist uh, Max Weber called it the the disenchantment of the world. The job of the Enlightenment is to take the take all this the, the uh, sort of the lore and the magic and the fun the things that we're doing on this podcast and replace them with scientific knowledge. Mm. It is way better if you can take a legendary creature and show that it is the result of the misinterpretation of a real creature that really exists and has just been misunderstood and misrepresented then if you have to say i'm sorry this thing just doesn't exist right because because it enacts that process of disenchantment and it's saying there you know like the real pe- pelican has always existed they got it wrong for this reason and now we're going to get it right because we're replacing their kind of magical understanding of the world with a scientific one which is why i think we still do this kind of thing and i think we do it not only to the pelican but lots of other things right like how do they come up with this idea of X? We usually try that reverse ideology and say like, well, obviously there was some real animal, which they observed. And then, you know, their magical thinking came, it crept in and they did this thing to it, but there's always the real creature. And I think we want to insist on that. Linnaeus wants to insist on that, but he's doing it because he's reacting to the fantastic pelican.
0: Yeah. I mean, your point is well taken. And I think, it kind of goes back to a discussion we've had in the past about um, crypto biology and the idea of I am bound and determined to prove that the Loch Ness monster is real and I'm going to use this fossil evidence and this other, you know, piece of unconnected evidence over here, this sort of scientific evidence to construct a, if not probable, at least, you know, marginally plausible account of the, the realness of this animal. And I do think for a medieval book owner or the the sculptor carving a a pelican on the portal of a cathedral or queen elizabeth having her pelican medallion made like what a real pelican looked like was of zero consequence because absolutely as you say this was a completely fantastic animal it's relationship to something out, out there on the wing was irrelevant. At the same time, I, I feel like pelicans are not in the same category as geese and chickens and or even eagles, by the same token that they're not in the same category as tigers, right? They they exist in this. And and, and I think we started our podcast talking about sea creatures, right? And the way the sea generates these sort of creatures that are hard to categorize. There's a thing and it has all of these different sort of hybrid traits. It's got suckers and and teeth and and googly eyes and maybe a couple of heads and, you know, on and on and on. And this idea of the liminal zone that, that is the sea. And we haven't really talked about this because the source is don't really talk about it that much, but pelicans are seabirds and they, and, and the only source that really does talk about it is that all riddle, right? Like he says, they drink the seawater and they're out there slurping up the sea. I, I think that to me is really, it shows that this, there was sort of, I want to call it a shimmer, a kind of instability between knowing that the pelican that you, that was represented, the legendary pelican was the same animal as this animal that's out there in kind of at the margins of the land, that it's the same creature, but not the same creature, that it exists on a kind of flexible continuum. And I think a lot of medieval thinking about beasts had that flexibility and that fluidity to it. And the problem that people like Topsil and other early modern naturalists had is exactly, as you describe it, this this kind of imperative to put things into their proper boxes and to keep them there and to not let them be in two boxes at once. So maybe in the 16th and 17th century, that imperative was kind of a weak imperative, but as you say, by the Enlightenment, that becomes the guiding principle of this emergent emergent idea of science and scientific knowledge.
1: You know, apparently pelicans are easy to tame and they were kept as pets in in various places. So not always in that the marginal space of, of the sea. And I think the force of that initial allegory, which given the fact that they do it all over in bestiaries, it's interesting that that, that Less of it persists, but that's the the pelicans one. It sort of went viral, right? In other words, it it basically was so powerful that it took over, uh, in you know every every depiction and every representation, driving out everything else and persisting. Interesting bird, though.
0: Yeah, a really strange bird. And going back to what I said at the beginning, like it, it's another one of those animals that's just so charismatic because of its seeming antiquity or any evolutionary biologist will tell you like there's no such thing as an oldest species because we're all the oldest species right but the idea that these animals have not changed very much evolutionarily over a period of Thirty-five million is kind of mind-blowing—and and and definitely gives them a kind of you know magical quality. No matter how scientific you try to be about them. When I lived in California, we would go out to the coast, and you would see these sort of phalanxes of brown pelicans. Often we lived in Northern California, so just gliding along above the the salty mist, above the surf, you know, and kind of surfing the air currents, just out there, enormous birds. And you just felt transported like out of this time.
1: It, it might seem as though there's no echoes of the of the medieval pelican in the modern pelican at all. But um, I, I have a book. I bet you have this book uh, on your shelf if, if you, you know, if you like watching wildlife at all. Bird watchers are usually familiar with the Peterson's Guide to Wild mm-hmm. Birds. Right. So mm-hmm. like, I have it on my shelf and you know it's mainly an identification guide so it doesn't have a lot about uh, you know biology or ecology or anything but it it you know has some information about all the birds interestingly of of the birds here they record the voice of the you know what do the birds sound like right so like they'll tell you what a bird's call is like mm-hmm. uh, in, in written form it's always hard to like, really understand what that means but baby birds have a different sound than the than the adult right when they're on the nest pretty much you'd say that's true of mm-hmm. most birds right like yeah most baby birds sound different than the adult birds absolutely the only bird oh. in Peterson's for which there is a specific sound assigned to the nestlings hmm. is the pelican really yep Peterson's doesn't seem to care about the, the noises that other baby birds make that are different only noting the pelican babies so I'm like I gotta like this is the echo of like the maternal love of the pelican. And like, what do you think about pelicans? When you think pelicans, you think nestlings.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I have to admit that when I think pelicans, I think DDT, but that's maybe a product of, you know, having been raised by environmentalist parents in the (laughs) seventies. They're really amazing birds. I mean, they're so beautiful. The, the North American brown pelican is to me, one of the most majestic animals you can see gliding across the water. They have this sort of like faintly gold plumage around their face. And then they have this like orange beak with a black pouch. They're just really dramatic and gorgeous.
1: Yeah. Good flyers too. Right. And, you know, and, and that was, that's noted even in the really, the early natural history sources is how, how well they fly. Although I think these days, so we hold up the pelican as being amazing because it is in so many ways. But we mm-hmm. tend to pay attention to things like it's the ability they have to glide over the, you know, the, that gliding over the waves you mentioned is a very specific kind of use of the uh, aer- aerodynamic use where you can like glide forever on like a, like a cushion of air. That's mm-hmm. noted as being special. Uh, their ability to dive at great speed in the round ones, particularly dive down from really high up, super fast into the water and don't get hurt. And they go way down to get fish. That's held up. The pouch is was clearly the marvelous thing for the early moderns. The amazing thing. But the the pouch tends to be not like that. The pouch has gotten downplayed. And I think it's because it's it's often sort of like maybe a little comical. It's associated with like the child idea of the pelican, you know, with the big pouch hanging under it. So I think what we've done is replace even the preternatural marvel with the natural marvel. But we're still holding the pelican up as being particularly fantastic among other birds, which is also an echo.
0: So do you like um nice pens? Like fountain pens? Are you um, a fan?
1: I I tend to lose pens.
0: <laughs> ah. well there's a very nice brand of of German, I believe, fountain pen called a pelican. Oh yeah, with a K. Yeah, with a K. And it's again, you know, it was the family logo of the of the um or the family crest of the the man who founded the company back in the 19th century. Um, But they updated their logo. I want to say, you know, sometime like in the 20th century, I can't remember exactly when, um, when that happened, but they updated their logo and added a pouch back in because that heraldic pelican, as you mentioned, doesn't have a pouch. I think it was around maybe 19. 50s, the brand mark changed and the pelican got its pouch back. Yeah. Although it's still pecking its breast.
1: The Irish, the Irish blood service is clearly their, their pelican logo is clearly an, like a, a modern pelican with you know, like the, the long bill and the pouch. All right. We're going to have to end here. Alrighty. So this has been great. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes. We would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation.